Welcome to Fertile Minds Radio. Here you'll find wisdom for your fertility journey and beyond, chosen specifically to help you trust your body and elevate your spirit so you can enjoy the process. Join us and see what a fertile mind feels like. Now your host, Hilary Talbot Rowland. How's everybody doing today? I hope you're having an amazing day. I myself am super excited and I wanted to share it with you because it only means more value to you, the listener. Today I was accepted into the Women's Functional and Integrative Medicine Training Program offered by Dr. Aviva Ram, and it's a huge honor as well as a huge commitment, both time-wise and financially lasting 10 months. But instead of being overwhelmed by it, I'm super excited, and I can't wait to start the program, which is exactly how I know I made the right decision. Now, I chose to do this for a number of reasons, and one of them is you, the listener. Dr. Aviva Ram, if you don't know her, is absolutely amazing. She's been one of my trusted teachers for the past decade, especially when it comes to women's health and using Western herbs and other natural approaches to disease like diet. She has over 35 years of experience as a midwife and an herbalist, and a few years ago, she even made the leap and graduated from Yale Medical School, deciding that if she really wanted to shake things up in medicine and practice true integrative medicine, she had to approach the other side. Now that's exactly what she does, marrying all of her 35 years of experience into this beautiful triad of real medicine using Western medicine, Chinese herbs, Western herbs, uh, Vedic herbs, diet and lifestyle, and taking the whole person into consideration, or what I like to call wisdom-based medicine. Now, one of the main reasons that I chose to study with her, besides her awesomeness, is that she's always prided herself on evidence-based herbalism, which I absolutely love. In any of her books, blog posts, or podcasts, you can always find the links to evidence to back up what she's saying. And I probably reference her herbal books twice a week in my practice just because there is so much information and I find that this makes the patient a little bit more comfortable in understanding what and why they're putting something into their body. And I truly believe that in this day and age, there's no reason not to involve science. Just because something has been traditionally used doesn't mean that it's always a good idea for us. This goes for pharmaceuticals, over-the-counter supplements, and herbs. For example, if you look at some of the greatest pharmaceutical debacles of our time, they were perpetuated based on the idea that if it's been prescribed, then it must be safe. And there are a few that I can think of right off the top of my head that caused long-term major issues in humanity. One of those was thalidomide in the 50s. It was an anti-nausea drug from Germany, and it caused 10,000 cases of phocomelia, which is this type of birth defect where the limbs are super small compared to the trunk of the person. And unfortunately, only half of those children survived. And it was really a case of, oh, the doctor down the street is prescribing this and it's working, so it must be safe. And it wasn't. Another is DES. And that was a substance that was thought to cause no harm and prescribed between the 40s and the 70s in the the US, 30 years. And it's a synthetic estrogen that was thought to prevent miscarriage, even though the science behind it in a double-blind trial showed that it was ineffective. It was perpetuated by this idea of another doctor prescribed it, and therefore it must be safe. In utero, the exposure to DAS to girls of mothers who took this caused them to have rare vaginal tumors, T-shaped uterus, early menopause, infertility, breast cancer, fibroids, obesity. And the exposure to boys in utero caused testicular cancer, infertility, hypospadia, hypogonadism, and the exposure to the drug is still causing problems today, meaning that in the third generation, so the grandchildren of the mothers that took this, are now thought to be at an increased risk for irregular periods, infertility, ovarian cancer, and hypospadias in male. Just because we think so-and-so took something, it must be okay. That's not always the case. We really need to dig into the science and a trusted professional and why they think something is safe for our particular use. And a more recent example that I was personally affected by is the example of the prescribing of Accutane. This idea that if it's naturally occurring in the body, then it must be okay. 
perpetuated the overprescribing of Accutane. If you don't know what it is, it's a drug for cystic acne, but it's essentially concentrated vitamin A. And this was proved to be wildly incorrect when it was overprescribed in the 80s and 90s to treat acne. Animal studies actually suggested that there was teratogenic effects, so the FDA did require warning labels. However, just because you practice birth control doesn't mean that it always works. And a number of patients, young patients including myself, were not put on birth control. More than 2,000 women in the U.S. became pregnant, and most pregnancies ended in miscarriage or abortion. And of those that didn't, there were only 160 babies born, and they all had major, major birth defects. So unfortunately, I was one of those women. It definitely shaped and paved the way for me wanting to be a different kind of physician and to really treat the person holistically and to understand what I'm giving somebody and where the science is that says it'll work. Because although the Accutane did work, it cleared up my horrific cystic acne, it came at a huge price. And even though I've rectified this and seen this as one of those major lessons in my life that really set the trajectory for my path in treating women, it was beyond horrific when I was that young and I had to terminate a pregnancy. The irony being that I would go on to specialize in infertility. And before I even felt pregnant, I had begged my doctor to take me off of it. I was severely depressed as a result of this medication. I had crazy nosebleeds every morning. I had no lip lines because my lips had peeled back. And I I just vividly remember sitting in this dermatologist's office crying, telling him that I needed to go off of this medication. And he told me that I was a teenager and that depression was normal. And then I would just have to get over it if I wanted a clear face. Looking back, I can't believe that that happened, but it did. And I feel like it's really important to share stories like this with you, not in a way of TMI, but because I know that it's happened to so many women. And it's just something that I carried as a secret for way too long. And I feel like it should be talked about because I know I wasn't the only one that experienced this. Now, this particular physician also told me that food in no way affected my cystic acne, which we now know is completely wrong. If you just look at the balance of the gut biome and its relationship to skin, you can see that it is absolutely not only has to do with what you're eating, but the health of your gut biome and what you have available to you to actually break down food. That gut biome can be severely thrown off by any number of medications, not just antibiotics, not just pharmaceuticals, but even herbs and over-the-counter supplements. I share this because I wish I had followed my gut, so to speak, and taken myself off this medication. I was 16, though, and I saw my physician as an authoritative figure. I want you to ask questions when it comes to being prescribed something or undergoing any medical procedure whether it is traditional or alternative practitioner that you are seeking care from. Be informed. Be an advocate for yourself. Ask questions. All of this really shaped me to want to understand that just because something is seen as natural, has always been prescribed, doesn't mean that there aren't problems with it. And it doesn't mean that it works. And I want to arm women with enough information to be informed patients who trust their guts when they enter into any medical system. Those reasons are why I joined this graduate level professional program, because I want to take a deep dive into the science, which I promise you I will be bringing you in the next, well, forever, because this is going to be part of my brain now, but certainly more concentrated over the next 10 months as I go through this program. The other reason that I embarked on this course is that much like traditional Chinese medicine or TCM, Functional medicine is always looking for the root cause of an issue. Dr. Rom has a holistic yet systematic approach that looks at the entire patient, her environment, and considers the physical, emotional, and spiritual side, much like I do in my own practice. And I love this because many of the issues surrounding infertility are very complex symptom patterns, and it can be really overwhelming to know where to begin, especially if you're trying the DIY approach to figuring out your own health or fertility. I hope to give you a little bit clearer direction if this is your case. 
So from here on out, you can expect to see me applying her root cause model to all of the episodes that I bring you without a guest so that you can get used to looking at the different aspects of your health and figuring out what needs to be addressed first, and then really feeling confident about which supplements or herbs you choose, because they'll be presented in such a way that you can pick what you need most, instead of taking all 20 things that you read about on the internet that may or may not help, until you eventually get sick of taking supplements and take nothing and no change happens. That's what I don't want to see happen. I want to see as many women empowered as possible to take control of their health, And not only their health, but to understand the health of their unborn child begins with them. And not only their unborn child, but the next generation, their unborn grandchildren. How we take care of our bodies in the 12 months prior to falling pregnant has a huge impact on the next two generations. And this is really something that I hold near and dear and why I do the work that I do. Because I feel like our planet is at a tipping point in terms of not just resources and things like global warming, but our health. For the first time ever in the United States, children are being born with a lower life expectancy than their parents. And if we are sending down copies two generations at a time of our genes, and we're not teaching people how to ensure that these genes don't trigger on or mutate into various health issues, then we're not actually practicing preventative medicine. And so that's what I call true preventative medicine or a conscious conception, which is what I want most for all of you. Now, I realize that this is a really long intro, and you might be asking yourself what all of this has to do with today's episode on PCOS. It has a ton to do with it, because so many women that have PCOS don't even know that they have it. They aren't educated on how they can reverse it naturally, and many are slapped on birth control or metformin to address the symptoms, not the root cause, which does absolutely nothing to help you get pregnant when the time comes. And these medications are used because it's what's quote-unquote always been prescribed. In the U.S., 1 in 10 women will have a diagnosis of PCOS at some point in their life, which is the equivalent to 5 million women, and that's crazy to me that so many women are being incorrectly treated. So I wanted to get the news out there that you can take matters into your own hands and that there are practitioners out there qualified to help you. And just because something is status quo in the healthcare system, i.e. birth control and metformin, doesn't mean that there aren't sometimes safer and more effective alternatives available. It also means that things should be prescribed to you in your unique case because we are all different, especially when it comes to PCOS. There's actually about 10 different types that can present, not what the majority of healthcare physicians think of as PCOS. Usually, Western healthcare professionals think of PCOS to be someone that's overweight with high testosterone a 2 to 1 LH to FSH ratio in their hormones, and having cysts show up on an ultrasound around the ovaries. But in reality, there are so many different presentations that it's more like a spectrum with women being affected to different degrees, causing different symptoms and severities. The other reason I wanted to do an episode on PCOS is because 85% of the women affected with it can reverse it naturally, which is crazy to me. I don't know anything else in science or in medicine where 85% could be reversed based on lifestyle, diet, and some simple some simple supplements. I think that's absolutely incredible, and I think more women need to know that it's possible. And the sad part is, is that a lot of physicians don't even look at it like it is reversible. They often talk to you about managing it with things like metformin to manage insulin and sugar levels, as well as birth control, which only suppresses the hormonal function. It doesn't actually treat it. And in fact, birth control, ironically, has been shown to perpetuate insulin resistance, which is the root cause in most types of PCOS. So it's actually making it worse. And if you know or love someone with type 2 diabetes, you know that the same level of, we're just going to manage it and you're going to have it forever, status quo type of healthcare is exactly what's happening. Many diabetes patients, diabetes type 2, mind you, are not being told that they can reverse it through diet, and they absolutely can. So birth control works in the way that it stops you from ovulating and you don't create the cysts, but you're still insulin resistant, which puts you at a much higher risk of diabetes, infertility, and later cardiovascular disease, including stroke. 
And when you come off the birth control, you're not magically fertile afterwards. You still have to address the issue of PCOS. So sadly, in my practice, I see a lot of women who had irregular periods when they were teenagers, and they were just slapped on birth control. And they stayed there for decades until they decided they wanted to have a baby. And then they came off, and lo and behold, here come the erratic periods. And in reality, they had this great opportunity in those two decades that they were on birth control to really try and address the insulin resistance and clean up their diets and learn a new way of eating, but they were never educated about this way of self-correcting their health. And it was a huge disservice to them. So in today's episode, we're going to go into great detail about how you can reverse your PCOS in about 9 to 12 months naturally, which I know if you're listening and you have PCOS, you might be thinking that that's a really long time or you've tried it before and it didn't work. And I'm here to tell you that it absolutely can work. And when you consider that this was a syndrome that very likely manifested itself in utero while your mother was carrying you, and you've essentially had this for your entire life, 12 months isn't really that long to reverse it. The other aspect to consider is that by reversing it before you fall pregnant, you dramatically lower the chances of the next two generations of your female children having PCOS or diabetes, and you from having gestational diabetes, which is huge because that can go on to cause type 2 diabetes in your life. You have so much power available to you that I want you to know about and realize and take control of. You have the chance to actually change the health of the planet two generations at a time, simply by putting your health first. That's such a gift for you and your entire family, even if they're not here yet. So what exactly is PCOS? If you're listening and you don't know, it was previously considered a gynecological problem diagnosed on the presence of ovarian cysts by ultrasound, and now it's actually recognized as a complex endocrine disorder with with multiple possible causes and clinical manifestations. And only one of those actually yields polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound. So if you've been told that just because your ultrasound came back without the string of pearls that you don't have PCOS, that could be wildly incorrect. Where did PCOS come from? You heard me mention in utero. And then it's more than likely that it developed while your mother was carrying you in response to diet. And that it was a way to genetically protect you from famine or starvation. And that's all well and good if you're born into an area with famine or not enough food. But what happens when you're born into an area of feasts like the United States where everything is laden with corn syrup and you have insulin resistance? You're basically a sitting duck waiting for polycystic ovarian syndrome to develop as a result of your capacity to not be able to handle carbohydrate load very well. So I tell you that because oftentimes when a woman finds out later in life and she goes to get pregnant that she has PCOS. She's devastated. She's kind of like, how did this happen? I eat pretty healthy a lot of the time. I exercise. You know, and and many of those women aren't like eating cupcakes every day and they're absolutely devastated. And they're wondering how the heck do I have a problem with sugar? When they begin to understand that it was likely a predisposition from their mother in utero based on changes in the food supply, they can then have a little bit more grace and compassion with themselves as well as motivation to try and stop it for the next generation. So if you understand that it was possibly somewhat genetic, it takes some of that burden off of you in terms of blame and shame, which can have other impacts on your fertility. I also want you to understand that your mom didn't know. Food was wildly changed in the 50s. So if you were born, especially in the 70s and 80s, where there was a lot of processed food given, a lot of sugar, and God forbid if you were in utero in the 90s during the low-fat diet craze where everybody was fed a healthy diet of things like NutraSweet, it could absolutely affect your ability to process carbohydrates. I also want you to remind you that just because you have a genetic predisposition for something doesn't mean that it's going to happen either. It just means that you have to work a little harder than somebody else that doesn't have it to make sure that it doesn't trigger on. So how exactly is PCOS diagnosed and what are the symptoms, especially if it's not the traditional phenotype like most of us think of? PCOS is a a clinical diagnosis and is primarily diagnosed based on having some or all of the classic symptoms and having other medical conditions being ruled out. While testing the blood on day three, looking at the ratio between LH, luteinizing hormone, and FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone, estradiol, and testosterone can certainly be one of the ways we diagnose PCOS. 
we need to look at the symptoms too. Some women actually come back without abnormalities in the hormonal testing, meaning that they don't have that two-to-one ratio of LH to FSH, and it doesn't mean that you don't have the condition. You need a healthcare practitioner that is willing to exhaust all the different possibilities until they figure out what exactly is going on with you. And not everybody that has PCOS has multiple cysts in their ovaries, like I said. And not everybody that has PCOS is overweight or has abnormal hair growth from excess testosterone which does happen in one phenotype, but not all. There are often times when I'm sitting with a thin woman in my my practice, and I'm looking at her thinking, okay, all of these symptoms. She gets periods, but maybe they go longer, and sometimes she skips. She's telling me she skips breakfast, and if she does, she's hangry if she doesn't eat on time. Or she's lived off of caffeine for a really long time, uh, maybe through college or graduate school. Maybe she's losing some hair on her head or she has some mood instability. All of these things kind of clue me in that there might be some insulin resistance happening, even though she's not that traditional overweight um, phenotype of PCOS. You know, maybe she even over-exercises to keep her body that thin. That's also very common, which is exactly why we can't just rely on our sight and one type of phenotype to diagnosis. The symptoms of PCOS can include any of the following, infertility, irregular periods, lapses between periods for months at a time without being pregnant or breastfeeding, acne, weight gain, unwanted facial hair, or hair in places where it doesn't traditionally grow, like the nipples or below the belly button, hair thinning or hair loss, which oftentimes looks like male pattern baldness in PCOS. And then less commonly, sometimes you can see darkening of the skin in the armpits, in the back of the neck, or the groin. The other aspect to consider is that women with PCOS are also more likely to suffer from depression and anxiety. They can have eating disorders, particularly binge eating. And this is for reasons that aren't very clear. We don't really understand if it's the chicken or egg, meaning did it come out of the blood sugar dysregulation and in turn worsen the problem? Or if you've got blood sugar imbalances, you know, you could have some serious ups and downs with anxiety and depression. Or if you have insulin resistance and you're dieting and you're not seeing weight come off, it can be maddening and upsetting to your emotional health. And if you have a moment of despair, it can kind of feel like all is lost and kick you into binge eating, especially if your blood sugar is low and you're feeling hungry or hangry. It's kind of like this perfect storm. We don't really understand which came first, but we see them oftentimes coexisting. And this is important because those are the three major things that women are medicated for in the U.S., anxiety, depression, and weight gain. And I feel like it's a huge disservice to women to just give them a pharmaceutical without looking at maybe what the underlying cause is. Maybe straightening out somebody's blood sugar can have a huge effect on their anxiety or their depression, and I see it all the time. The other reason that this episode is super important is women with PCOS unregulated are more likely to experience pregnancy complications. They are 20 to 40% more likely to experience a miscarriage due to insulin resistance and the hormonal problems that it creates. Oftentimes there is estrogen dominance and not enough progesterone to actually hold a healthy pregnancy. And I do happen to see and observe a lot of chemical pregnancies or early stage miscarriage in women that have this kind of slight spectrum of PCOS. But then after we do a little bit of deeper digging, we find that they've had these symptoms all along and that controlling their blood sugar dysregulation as well as their hormonal picture is quintessential to actually helping them get pregnant and stay pregnant. Diet becomes super important in these women. And I don't ever want anybody to have to go through the heart of a miscarriage if we can prevent that. So the five routes to treatment, the different aspects that we look at, I want you to listen to all of these and kind of think about which ones hit home with you first and to pick your supplements from there. The first one is going to be blood sugar imbalance. And I think that this is most important to bring up because like I've noted, it's a probable cause of most women with PCOS. It's the thing that has the most impact on your long-term health and generationally those that come after you. 
it's not just that your hormones are whacked. It's that it has its roots in your body's ability to handle sugar. And the biggest thing that you do have control over is your diet because you have to eat every day, right? And this is this kind of like double-edged sword that can be great and then oftentimes maddening. And especially if you buy into what society tells you about dieting. For instance, the other day I saw this GIF on social media that pointed out, was trying to say that the efficacy of using a ketogenic diet, a paleo diet, or a Mediterranean diet when it came to treating PCOS was the exact same as long as you had caloric restriction. We've known for a long time that it's not necessarily a calculation of calories in, calories burned off. And while, yes, caloric constriction can help you to lose weight, there's one major issue where it doesn't help you lose weight, and that is if you have adrenal burnout, which so many women with PCOS do have, and we're going to talk about that in the second category. And I also think it's a huge disservice because you read that and you think, I've tried all of these diets and I've restricted my calories and nothing's happening. That may be so much more than just calorie restriction that's holding you back from losing that 5 to 10% of your body weight that can help to regulate your endocrine system. And we want that to happen, but we want you to do that in a way that is not self-defeating. One of the things that I'll look at with a woman who's told me that she's had trouble losing that 5 to 10% of her body mass uh, and has done various diets that are recommended in PCOS is I'll look at if there's maybe some food triggers where they're eating something that's inflammatory or taking a supplement like a probiotic with an inflammatory strain that's causing havoc in their gut biome. And we're going to get into those because those are part of the routes to figuring out your supplements. And I feel like that that's super important to do that detective work because it can be maddening when you're doing everything quote unquote perfectly and nothing's happening. Now, adrenal burnout, like I mentioned, if a woman has severe adrenal fatigue and you restrict her calories, you actually push her into a state of starvation. And if you've already got genetic predisposition with PCOS pointing towards being insulin uh, resistant for famine, you can see, well, this might not work, right? Do think that if you are run down and having any of the symptoms of adrenal burnout, like we're going to talk about in just a minute, it is super important that you eat enough calories, that you have breakfast, and that you don't do intermittent fasting at first because this can actually make things worse. You have to control the blood sugar and resensitize the cells in its ability to break down insulin and then you can do some things like experimenting with fasting. Um, otherwise, it just makes you more tired and more hangry, more irritable, and you are not going to lose weight. In terms of the science behind diet for PCOS, low inflammatory, low glycemic Mediterranean diet or a modified ancestral diet, meaning paleo with lots of vegetables in it, not just all meats, have been the two that have shown the most evidence to dramatically affect PCOS in terms of weight loss. And the bottom line is, is that most patients with PCOS will respond to a diet that is no more than 80 grams of carbohydrate a day and has about 60 to 90 grams of protein and the rest being good fat. So you can see that you are in fact getting carbohydrates. We're not limiting you down to 15 grams like you would see in a ketogenic diet. The majority of these carbohydrates, though, are coming from fiber-rich vegetables and fruits. And while fruits are high in sugar, you just want to balance that out with more vegetables, less fruit. Think three-to-one ratio in, in your diet. And the aim for about a pound of vegetables a day is a really great goal, which I know sounds like a lot, but for all you goal-oriented women out there, if you're slowly increasing your fruit and vegetable intake and vegetables on the high side and you're aiming for a pound a day... I can guarantee that you're going to make way less poor food choices. At the end of the day, you're going to be so full of fiber that you're not even going to want that cupcake or whatever is lying around tempting you. In terms of blood sugar instability, there are a couple of supplements that can help you. One of them is vitamin D. It has been associated with insulin resistance in low amounts. 
having your vitamin D tested to see whether you're low is super easy and can be done by any of your physicians. You can also order a cash pay test on your own. And then supplementation depends on how low you are. With 2,000 to 5,000 units a day being the kind of optimal range, what you want to do is you want to start with either of those depending on how low you are and then retest again in 30 to 60 days to see if it's making a difference on the levels themselves. One of the supplements uh, that I use in my practice all the time kind of as a first line of defense when I think that there is an issue with insulin resistance, whether you're talking about a thin or overweight uh, phenotype, is inositol. And inositol comes in a couple different forms. And a lot of the studies that have been done actually show that it's advantageous to have a combination of myo-inositol and dechiro-inositol. And that's at a ratio of 40 to 1 of myo-inositol to dechiro. And the reason for that is that's how it's naturally occurring in the body is in that ratio. So you want to have the myo-inositol to come in somewhere around 4 grams a day and the dechiro to come in around 1,200 milligrams a day. Myo-inositol shows improvements in the luteinizing hormone and the follicle-stimulating hormone ratio, as well as the free testosterone and prolactin levels. And the dechiro has been shown to improve insulin sensitivity, to regulate ovulatory function, and to decrease testosterone, high blood pressure, and high triglycerides, which we often see in conjunction with the PCOS spectrum. Now, you can see how these two supplements put together in the right concentration can affect the whole spectrum, the entire picture of PCOS. So it's affecting the hormones as well as the insulin part of the picture and even some of the cardiovascular effects. In one study, a combination of 4 grams of myo-inositol plus 400 micrograms of folic acid significantly improved ovulation and conception in women with PCOS at a higher rate than 1,500 milligrams a day of metformin did. Now, as I mentioned before, metformin is that pharmaceutical that decreases blood insulin levels and is often prescribed to PCOS patients. It doesn't have any effect on the hormones, though. And when you go off of it, your insulin levels oftentimes go back to how they were prior to the metformin. Diet-wise, if you can tolerate beans, you can increase your intake of legumes, garbanzo beans, kidney beans, and non-genetically modified organic soy, as they all contain high amounts of naturally occurring dechiro and myo-inositol. And they have the ability to improve glycemic regulation as well as reduce cardiovascular disease because they are so high in fiber. So you don't have to take these as a supplement if this is something that you tolerate well in your diet without bloating or fatigue or changes in bowels in a negative manner after you eat them. I highly encourage you to get them in your diet. Another herb or supplement that is used in blood sugar regulation is cinnamon. And we use this all the time in Chinese medicine. In fact, the main formula by which most others are based off of for treating PCOS and TCM is called Guizhou Fulin Wan, and Guizhou is cinnamon root bark. In a 2008 pilot study that examined the effect of cinnamon extract in treating PCOS, participants were assigned to either receive cinnamon or placebo daily over the course of eight weeks. And using fasting and oral glucose tolerance tests, they showed statistically significant results seen in the cinnamon group compared to the placebo. Cinnamon is an excellent way to treat and lower your insulin resistance. It's also been shown to increase menstrual cycles. So if you're one of these women that has erratic cycles, taking cinnamon frequently can help with this. It's also a really versatile spice that you can manage to sneak in your diet most days if you cook for yourself. It's even good in drinks. So if you are still taking in some coffee or tea, you can add it to that. But if you are one of these women that has adrenal burnout, which I promise we're going to get to right now, I don't think that you should be using caffeine. It's one of those things that perpetuates it, does not help it. So this other category of adrenal burnout that I've referenced a couple times, super important when treating PCOS. Um, it's really known as HPA access dysregulation. And what that is, is the hypothalamus, the pituitary, and the adrenal access, meaning how they communicate together with their respective hormones, has been interrupted. 
And one of the biggest things that you can do for yourself if you have experienced adrenal burnout or this feeling of being super, super exhausted or wired and tired is also another part of HPA dysregulation that happens. One of the things that you can do to help yourself is to make sure that you get the proper amount of sleep. Rest becomes first line of defense that you have naturally without buying anything. Okay, You earn HPA access dysregulation through burning the candle at both ends, overstretching yourself, not getting enough rest, and not getting enough proper relaxation. So basically, you have your stress response turned on 24-7. That part of your nervous system, the sympathetic part that governs fight or flight, gets stuck in some people that overdo, especially um, what we would refer to as type A. I'm raising my hand because I'm a recovering type a -er for the rest of my life. Um, maybe you like to control things, and as a result, you overextend yourself. Our bodies were only made to have this type of response 15% of the time, but what's really common in HPA access dysregulation is to see a patient that is living there all the time. Um, they have very few opportunities to turn on the relaxation response. They're kind of addicted to this chaotic, overdoing, overstressful life. And I empathize with this greatly because I suffered from adrenal burnout for about a decade until I got control of it. And I understand how difficult it can be to change the patterns around overdoing and to help prevent it from getting kind of turned back on. Uh, it can like I said, it can be addictive, right? You just have this sense of control uh, and just handling shit, but it comes at a huge price. Uh, I'll never forget when I had my blood work pulled and I did a 24-hour urine cortisol test and my functional nurse practitioner looked at me and was like, wow, you should be asleep right now. You have no cortisol. You're like, a fifth-year medical resident who has not slept in five years. And it was kind of true. I worked through graduate school. I put myself through undergrad and graduate school, and I definitely overworked, and it came at a huge price. But it didn't show up until later, which is why I had a little bit of problem putting the two things together uh, early on in my career before learning about functional medicine in all of its glory. So I mentioned sleep being super important. The, I am uber protective of my sleep. I actually have an alarm on my phone that tells me when it's time to start powering down, meaning no more screens, no more blue light, things that will help my sleep hygiene, so to speak. And I actually start to get in bed around 9 p.m. with the hopes of being asleep by 11 um, by reading or conversing with my husband and you know, just kind of starting to, to power down. And if you can start to unwind around nine o'clock, um, I do think it is super important to not have screens on. So not looking at your phone or your Kindle, making sure that you don't have any blue lights in your bedroom, not even from clocks or computers, because they affect a part of your cell called the mitochondria. And we're going to talk about the mitochondria in a couple minutes. But in order to get restful sleep, you actually need complete blackness. Mitochondria are, are, are pretty cool. They are really primitive parts of our nuclei. They're actually adapted bacteria, and they are amazing at sensing light, so much so that it's not, they don't just work through your eyes. They actually can sense blue light through your skin. So you have to make sure that your room is completely blacked out in order to get adequate restful sleep that actually helps restore and change adrenal burnout quicker. Um, the other thing that you can do is to turn on your relaxation response as much as possible and as often as possible. You know, doing things like yoga and meditation or my mini mindful series in this podcast actually help you flip from stress to relaxation response and to regulate your nervous system. You can't control stressors, but you can control your reaction to them. So the more that you do these, the more aware you become of where you have been patterned and how to actually change that in your life. So the first step is actually committing to doing some of these things and just being more aware of yourself in a non-judgmental way and turning them on when you can. You know, I also want to stress the importance of 
not feeling like you have to be perfect and do all these things every day because it's quite impossible in our society. And that's the last thing I want is for you to apply this kind of over-controlling, um, rigid aspect to your self-care. We want you to meet your self-care with joy and not feel like it's a job. It should be the same way with your diet too. So like I said, the more that you can do these types of things and self-regulate, the better chances you have of your nervous system not disrupting your endocrine system or your hormonal system. And in terms of supplements, there are a lot of things that you can take to help regulate your nervous system. Um, Adaptogens are the greatest weapons that you have, so to speak. Adaptogens are this super interesting group of herbs. And what they do is they actually change the way your body perceives stress. So I'll give you an example. It's a rat study, unfortunately. There are so many rat studies where these poor animals are seemingly tortured. But what they did in this study is they decided to put two groups of rats um, in it. One got adaptogens and one did not. And they needed to put them in the most stressful situation possible, which unfortunately for them was to swim to their death. So the one group that got adaptogens, what they found when they autopsied their brains at the end of this was not only did they outswim the other rats by days, not hours, days, they had statistically significant less brain damage, meaning that they were just going for a swim. They didn't perceive that they were fighting for their life. So you can see how this changes your perception to stress when you take adaptogens. It actually changes your physiology. It makes stress just a mental thing, not something that immediately affects your physical body. So some adaptogens that you might be familiar with are ginseng, rhodiola, ashwagandha, licorice, dongshen, also known as codenopsis in Chinese medicine, Milky oats or shishandra, also known as wuweza in traditional Chinese medicine. Oftentimes, if you pick up an adrenal access formula or some that are even named HPA access formula, uh, there's a great one over the counter by Gaia that's named just that, you'll see a combination of these herbs. And I can tell you, these herbs are instrumental in recovering from adrenal burnout. They were instrumental in my recovery, and I still use them in stressful times to avoid sliding back into adrenal burnout because it can happen. Life can get hairy and you can overextend yourself. So in those times, this is something that I absolutely employ most days. Now, the only adaptogen that has been specifically studied for PCOS is licorice. Licorice is great. It's in a ton of Chinese formulas because it has this unique ability to harmonize other herbs and reduce their toxicity. However, it does have one contraindication that I want you to be aware of, and that's high blood pressure. So if you have high blood pressure, licorice is not for you. It tends to raise the blood pressure, and you would want to avoid that. And Another that I feel like is in so many supplements and people reach for because it's been kind of popularized is ginseng. And ginseng is a great adaptogen, especially if there is some heart involvement, meaning like you have palpitations, you feel your anxiety and stress in your chest, um, you get really nervous or wired and tired feeling. But energetically speaking, it's really, really hot. So especially red ginseng. If you have a lot of symptoms of heat, like you're sweating at night, maybe you're having hot flashes during the day as well, you've got red itchy skin, loose urgent bowels, ginseng is not the one for you. You would want to use something more cooling like dongshen or codenopsis. It's oftentimes substituted for ginseng in some of these formulas. And any herbalist that is making a custom formula will take these things into consideration when prescribing for you. And if you're a thinner phenotype of PCOS, um, like the kind that's go, 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 you can't gain weight that I lovingly describe as a little butterfly kind of going from one thing to the next, the correct adaptogen for you would be ashwagandha. Uh, it nourishes the yin or the fluids of the body and it, it helps to calm you without being overly sedating and can actually help your fertility picture. 
Now, the way that adaptogens actually work in the body, their mechanism of action is by regulating cortisol. So I'm sure you've heard about cortisol. It's that nasty hormone that makes us gain weight around our midsections. And if you've had a recent weight gain there and you've noticed it's cropped up in your belly, you might be able to correlate that this happens six months post a very stressful time in your life. When I explain this to women, they can usually track it back and mark it and say, oh my God, I had this stressful event or I had this period of time when I was go, go, go. And about six to nine months later is when I saw the physiological response in terms of the weight game in the center. And I feel like this is important because it's really important to understand the effects of stress in your body. It's not just some mumbo jumbo that we're saying like, hey, stress affects your fertility. You should meditate. When you can actually see how it's actually impacting the way your body stores fat, trying to protect you from a stressful situation by storing fat around your organs, you're like your body is super smart. It's trying to protect you. This helps you to see the impact of stress and how smart our bodies are and that they're not failing us. And in fact, they're trying to protect us from a lifestyle that we are not quite adapted to yet. Not only do adaptogens regulate the cortisol, but they also help to regulate blood sugar and insulin. And this is really important because when you're under stress, here's what happens. Your adrenals release the cortisol, and then that induces an elevation in prolactin, an increased androgen synthesis, which is testosterone, And then this is what leads to dysregulation in your menstrual cycle, having those abnormal cycles or skipping them altogether. And it really leads to anovulation or not ovulating at all, which are all characteristics of this PCOS spectrum, right? So when this happens, it's because you're stressed. It's a kind of protective mechanism of the prolactin being raised, telling your body, hey, we have to be our own birth control. We have to make sure we don't ovulate because it's not safe out there. This is not a safe place to have a baby. I want you to understand this because, again, I think it's so important and cool to see how stress can affect your body and how your body is actually trying to protect you in terms of infertility when you're super stressed. So if you feel like this is a category that you're listening to and all the bells are going off and you're like, oh, my God, that's me. I'm an adrenal burnout. I get this. I relate. I did an entire episode on adaptogens and explained them in further terms in terms of your best choices for fertility, not only for females, but for males too. So you can find that at ladypotions.com forward slash episode seven, and you can learn in even more depth about which one would be perfect for you or your partner. You might be listening to this thinking, that's not me, but that is definitely my partner. And adaptogens can certainly help with sperm production. Also, if it's really hard to lose weight and you're in fight or flight all the time, and you know that losing that 5 to 10% of the BMI would help to reset your endocrine system, but it's just not happening despite you taking steps in diet and exercise, I need you to take the stress response into consideration. This could be the very thing that is holding you back. The other part that is really important in terms of PCOS, and especially when it comes to weight loss and maybe it not happening, even though you've been following the diet, is gut health. And you might be thinking, what does my poop have to do with my fertility? But just hear me out. If you just sit back and think about how everything is so compacted in your lower abdominal area, your intestines are basically sitting on top of your reproductive organs. If you have anything happening like leaky gut, you're constipated and you're leaking toxins back into your body and around all of your reproductive organs. Just think about the fact Your ovaries are sitting in primordial goo for 120 days to get that one egg from start to finish. And if they're sitting in this junk, they're not going to be very healthy. They're not going to be good quality eggs. And the other issue with your gut is that this is the last part of detoxification in the body. If you aren't properly eliminating these toxins in your bowel, 
they circle back around your liver, which only lessens your liver's ability to get rid of excess hormones. If you have extra hormones in your body, interrupts interrupts all these negative feedback loops and can wreak havoc. So making sure that you're having daily bowel movements and detoxifying to the best of your own natural ability is super important. On the flip side, if your bowels are too loose and you're seeing undigested food, you're not absorbing everything that you should be from your food. I guarantee it. I also can guarantee that you probably have some type of vitamin or mineral deficiency, which will often lead to things like PCOS triggering on. I mentioned previously low vitamin D levels are almost always seen in PCOS patients. B12 insufficiency is also a big contributor to infertility across the board in females and males. So making sure that your vitamins are balanced is really important. And one way to tell that is by looking at the health of your bowel movements every day. Because you can tell so much what's happening internally just by observing your bowels. So if you're not having that bowel movement daily, things that could help you go would be to increasing your fiber up to 30 grams a day by adding something like ground flax seeds or psyllium husks if you tolerate them or increasing your vegetables like we talked about earlier. Chia seeds are also another great food supplement for increasing bowel function. You can include them in smoothies. You can make chia seed pudding. They're also high in the good types of fat, which also help insulin resistance as well as fertility across the board when you're increasing the good fats in your body. If constipation is your issue, there is another supplement that I typically recommend and I find most people are deficient in, especially if they're not eating enough fruits and vegetables, five to seven servings a day, and that is magnesium. You can do up to a thousand milligrams of magnesium citrate before bed to get your bowels moving. It can help move your bowels without having to use a strong purgative like senna or something that forces bowel peristalsis. It actually increases bowel peristalsis by turning on the part of your nervous system known as rest and digest. So it also helps you get more restful night of sleep. So if I see something that's constipated, isn't eating great, maybe it's having a little bit of insomnia, this is one of the first things that I'll reach for. The other aspect of gut health is leaky gut, and that's caused by all kinds of pharmaceuticals, over-the-counter medications, antibiotics, improper gut flora, improper diet, major abdominal surgeries, including C-sections. You may want to find out if there's any inflammatory food triggers, i.e. anything that's causing gut thinning or permeability of your intestines. If you're intolerant to gluten or dairy and you're eating it every day, This can build up and create a lot of inflammation that actually thins the lining of the gut, causing toxins to leak into the bloodstream. If you suspect leaky gut based on your history or the symptoms of fatigue, bloating, or negative changes in bowels after you eat, the way to heal that is with supplements and doing some combination of curcumin or turmeric, which are the same thing, licorice, marshmallow root, zinc, and L-glutamine, which is an amino acid that helps to heal the lining of the gut. Like I said before, if you have high blood pressure, licorice should not be the greatest for you. And while um, curcumin or turmeric is amazing, and there have been a ton of studies that show that it actually has a great effect on PCOS itself by way of the hormones, it's a uh, superb anti-inflammatory. The only reason that you would not want to use it is if you've had a diagnosis of Hashimoto's thyroiditis. I find that a lot of patients with Hashimoto's um, don't tolerate it so well, and it doesn't have quite the anti-inflammatory effects that you would expect. So again, if you're having leaky gut issues, you could use some or a combination. Oftentimes you'll see in like an inflamma GI supplement, you'll see some combination of these things, marshmallow root, zinc, L-glutamine, turmeric, and licorice. I personally will use L-glutamine by itself all the time to heal the gut. And I'll use that in a dose of five grams a day 
divided doses of 2.5 a day if I can. It's a white powder. You can throw it in your smoothies. You can drink it in water. Um, And usually you see effects within four weeks in terms of uh, less bloating, better bowel function, and less fatigue from toxicity. The other important thing to consider when healing the gut is a probiotic and a prebiotic. Now, probiotics are um, strains that create gut diversity in the in the microbiome of our gut. And then prebiotics are the food that the strains then feed off, both good and bad. You want to have strains of lactobacillus and bifidobacteria. Now, if you have high inflammation or something like histamine response or histamine intolerance, or you know that you are gluten or dairy intolerant, there are a few strains that you want to avoid, lactobacillus casei being one of them. It is unfortunately in a many of the probiotics available on the market, and it increases histamine response in the body and can make your inflammation picture worse. So when using a probiotic, if you suspect those things, histamine intolerance, immunity issues, or a gluten and dairy intolerance, then you want to try and take out the lactobacillus casei. The other potential problematic strains if you're dealing with skin issues or histamine intolerance on top of PCOS are lactobacillus ruteri and lactobacillus vulgaris. They are found in most yogurts and fermented foods, which if you do have histamine tolerance and you think you're having an immune response to sperm and you suspect that that's part of your infertility, you would want to avoid not only these strains in a probiotic, but also fermented foods across the board. You also want to include strains that will help degrade histamines, if this sounds like you, you have an overactive immune response, so to speak, uh, and this strain would be Bifobacterium infantis, this is found in breast milk, Bifobacterium lungum, and Lactobacillus plantarum. These are super helpful along with soil-based organisms, meaning prebiotics, to help feed the good strains and probiotics to help uh, increase your Uh, gut diversity in a safe way that won't increase inflammation and trigger your immune system on. So a little side note, not everybody with PCOS has any issue with histamine intolerance, but if your endocrine system's out of whack and your nervous system is out of whack, oftentimes I see it's only a matter of time before your immune system is then triggered by something. So if you're having uh, mental fog, unexplained weight gain, swelling, changes in your bowel, hives, urticaria is a huge one. You might want to also look at aspects of your immune system as well. Now, if you don't have any of those problems with your digestion or suspected histamine intolerance, lacto-fermented foods in your diet can actually be a really cheap and easy way to regulate your digestion. So using things like sauerkraut, yogurt, kombucha, as long as they don't bother you. And by bother, I mean you can usually see some type of allergic response, whether it's in the skin or the nasal cavities, as well as bloating and digestion problems within 72 hours of consuming those foods. Now, the other category that needs to be considered when you're cleaning up or trying to reverse PCOS is environmental toxins and detoxification overload. You really want to understand what you're being exposed to on a daily basis. Oftentimes, this is happening through your skin and beauty products, as well as your foods that are genetically modified and cause what's called xenoestrogens or bad estrogens to dock in your hormonal receptors. They're huge dysregulators, as are things like BPA, which is found in the linings of cans. So all of those tuna and LaCroix that you've been consuming thinking that you're eating healthy, the BPA inside can actually be detrimental to your estrogen uh, testosterone balance. Ways that you can help to naturally detoxify is by increasing the vegetable group of cruciferous vegetables like cauliflower, broccoli, and Brussels sprouts. Also, phytochemical rich foods like legumes and beads, if you're beans, if you're not intolerant to those, and whole grains with lots of fiber if you aren't gluten sensitive. So when I say whole grain, I mean the kind of bread that you can actually still see the grains in that has a hard crust. Uh, flax seeds and omega-3s are also very, very helpful in the detoxification process. 
Omega-3s help you detoxify in a calm way that don't really rock your body, including lots of herbs and spices into your cooking can also help you detoxify slowly in a way that isn't super jarring to your physical and emotional self. When I see somebody go on a detox, oftentimes they'll have emotional responses as well, which catches them off guard. They think that they're just detoxing their physical body. But in reality, oftentimes we have some emotional symptoms that come up with that too. So something to keep in mind if you're doing a quote-unquote detox. Much softer on your entire physical and mental emotional being to do it through food in a daily way as opposed to really rocking your body hardcore with supplements over 30 days. Spices like cinnamon, turmeric that we mentioned earlier, rosemary, garlic, ginger, fennel, dill, cardamom, thyme, they all help detoxify and were meant to be included in foods. In terms of supplements, you can use something like DIM, D-I-M, or N-A-C. Those help to increase detoxification slowly through the body by getting rid of xenoestrogens and helping estrogen metabolism regulate itself. The dosage for DIM is 100 to 200 grams a day, and NAC, or its longer name, N-acetylcysteine, is also really helpful in the way that it is the precursor to the glutathione detoxification pathway in the liver, helping your body to do what it already does naturally. It helps with the ridding of extra estrogen, balancing the androgen levels or testosterone, and it also has an affinity for resealing the gut and the sinus issues. So if you're somebody that suspects leaky gut or you have allergies, maybe you always have that sneezing, runny nose thing happening first thing in the morning, and you know that your estrogen testosterone levels are out of whack, NEC is something that can be really, really beneficial for you. And the dosage would be 600 grams in the morning and then 1,200 grams at night. And I like to dose it that way, which seems kind of uneven at first blush, because the 1,200 grams at night, that's going to help your liver when it's actually the most active detoxificating itself at night between the hours of 1 1 and 3 a.m. And this is a concept from traditional Chinese medicine. Okay, the last category. I know this has been a super long one, but PCOS is very complex. So I wanted to give you all the pieces to the puzzle. Energy production and mitochondrial function. If you are someone that has insomnia or fatigue, this category is for you. I talked about mitochondria a little bit earlier and the importance of getting sleep in a dark, dark room so that your mitochondria are not disturbed. This is super important in both males and females. There's been evidence that's been accumulating for the role of CoQ10 in the treatment of mitochondrial disorders and infertility for some time now. And if you want to check out those studies or any of the studies that I used to prepare this episode, you can do that by clicking on the show notes at ladypotions.com forward slash episode 43. Most of these studies have been animal studies, and they show that CoQ10 or its precursor ubiquinol, which is also much more cost-effective than CoQ10, by the way, greatly revitalized eggs and aged mice. So if you're advanced maternal age, that dirty abbreviation of AMA, which means you're over the age of 35, or advanced paternal age, meaning you're a dad over the age of 42, this could potentially help you. In one study, what happened was about 30% of the animals that received CoQ10 produced more and healthier eggs. They showed improved ovarian response and various consistent hormonal changes in a positive direction. The other supplement that can help in this category, specifically with restful sleep, is melatonin. In a study of mice that were fed melatonin, it enhanced mitochondrial antioxidant activities, thus reducing the risk of mitochondria oxidative damage caused by free radicals. So if you're someone that's having trouble sleeping, hasn't exactly been living a clean lifestyle, and think you have some detoxification issues or poor egg or sperm quality, you might consider melatonin before bed. I know that this is a ton of information. You guys have stayed with me well over the hour, so I'm going to make sure that it's all worth your while by having a nice handy-dandy 
chart that you can look at. It's going to be on those show notes at episode 43. And you can also refer to a little quiz that's going to be there helping you nail down your specific root causes so that you can start implementing the evidence-based herbs and supplements that will help you reverse your type of PCOS today. And of course, like always, if you feel totally overwhelmed, I'm always happy to work with you and give you an evaluation and point you in the right direction for your specific situation. You can find links on the show notes to contact me for those opportunities as well. I hope this has been super helpful and I look forward to hearing from you how this has changed your situation. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Fertile Minds Radio, hosted at www.ladyportions.com, where you'll find past episodes, show notes, and free meditations. If you've benefited from what you've heard, leave a comment or review so it makes it easier for others to find this valuable wisdom. Let's help elevate each other. Thanks for listening.